Every so often you come across a book or a quote or a line or a sentence that really helps to put all of life into perspective. And sometimes it's so profound that uh, you can't help but to sit back and to feel like, I wish that I would have heard this so long ago. If I would really just take this one phrase and put this one phrase into practice. And I really lived my whole life by this one quote. My life would drastically change for the better. Um, I came across this quote a few months ago as I was eating um, at a place in town called Fox Brothers. And here's the quote that radically changed my life. Fox Brothers is all right. Y'all, y'all. Y'all hype for no reason. Here's the quote um, that changed my life from John Wayne. He says this, life is hard. Life is harder if you're stupid. Life is, the, the world we live in, it's just a hard world. It becomes increasingly more hard if you're stupid. I lived a life and I've um, had a lot of great role models. As I think of uh, just my life, I've been impacted to be able to bless, uh, be blessed to witness some of the hardest working people on the face of the earth, two of which are my dad and my um, older brother. And I just just saw their work ethic and how they worked and how they always had this uh, mindset where they planned for the future. My brother got done with school early, got his master's while he was um, still there at the school, taught, worked full time, just worked hard, hard, hard. Him and my dad always had this mindset towards the future on trying to provide. And, and, and it was great just to see all of the benefit that comes from looking at the future and planning for it. I've lived life as well where um, I've had some anti-role models, people that I've looked and I've seen and they've um, wrecked their lives primarily because they haven't thought about the future. And the funny thing is, it is both of these groups kind of give me their keys to success. Both of them said the same thing. John, in life, live smart, work hard. That if you set your eyes on the future and live now in light of the possibility of what life will be like, your life will be better. And so I did that. I went to a good school. I got good grades, married an amazing woman, joined a great church 10 years ago that led me here, managed my funds well, boosted my credit score, right? And so I looked at the future, and it really did serve me well. Their advice was great that I found this, that uh, the adage, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. It's true. If you live a life completely focused on the present right now, and you fail to take the future into account, you will bankrupt your life. Looking at the future, it very well may be a key to success. But here's what I found out as well. Looking at the future is also the fuel for worry. It may be the key to success. It may prepare us for all of what we want to get in life. But one thing that we have to take into account is worry doesn't take place if we're not concerned about the future. All of our work is aimed towards the future. The job that you work right now, right? It may not be the long-term future retirement or college for your kids, but everything that we do, all of our work is aimed towards alleviating the stress and the strains, the worry that comes from an uncertain future. The future is very much a key to our success, but it's the fuel for our worry. Now, here's what that does for somebody like me. It frustrates me because I think if you split our world into kind of two groups, right? People that live for later and those that just loiter. People that live for a time that's 
will come and they prepare for that time and they'll sacrifice good things now so that they can get that. That's my wife. She does a great job of being able to deny herself of present pleasures and joy so that later will be good. But there's times where she's full of worry. I don't like to worry, so I just don't like to think about what will come. And I like to loiter and enjoy life right now. But the problem is, for those of us that look and are frustrated by the future, and we just spend our time in the present, we know based on the past that that doesn't work. Things go wrong. But then in the same vein, those of us that live our lives and we work really, really hard for a future that may not come, we know the frustration that comes from, I work and I plan and I work and I plan and I don't get what I hoped. And I have nothing to show for it because I hated my life while I was trying to get what I hoped. So is our fate just to live in this perpetual catch-22 where we have to pick our poison, where we just have to choose in which way do you want to be discontent? Do you want to be discontent now or later? I know it may seem like an oversimplification, but it feels that way sometimes. I don't think that that's all that we have, and I don't think that the writer of Ecclesiastes does either. But he is going to caution us about how you and I tend to look at the future. And one of the things that I just want you to know is this. Looking at the future is draining. It can drain you of your desire to live. And it can drain you of the diligence that you have to work right now. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Just to catch y'all back up to where we are. Ecclesiastes is a book written by this guy that's a king that has it all. And his main thing is, I'm trying to find the meaning of life. So he starts off this book and his aim is, all right, what gain is there in life? And the conclusion that he comes to is that life is meaningless. It's vanity, it's empty, it's frustrating. And he's going to use this one word, vain, over and over and over. That word vain is the same word in the Hebrew, where we get the word Abel from, Cain and Abel, right? We remember Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to four people in the Bible. Three of them have this relationship with God and they sin. One of them, it seems like he does all of the right things. And do you know the only person's death that we read about? The one that did all of the, the right things. Do all the right things, work hard, and what's going to take place at the end? You'll likely get brutally murdered. And he says, this is what life feels like. Does anybody else feel like that at times? So he's like, yeah, life is vain. So he goes on this pursuit trying to find, all right, what's the missing key? And he's like, maybe it's knowledge. Maybe it's just being smart. But the conclusion that he comes to is that's vain as well, because the more you learn, the more you lament. The more you learn, the more you see how broken that this world is. So then he goes on and says, all right, maybe it's pleasure. And so he spends his life trying to build this earthly paradise. And the conclusion that he comes to is, if knowledge makes me sad, pleasure just makes me empty. That we have these souls that will consume every earthly pleasure, even paradise, and still come out an empty person. Knowledge makes him sad. Pleasure makes him empty. And so now he's going to consider how good his life can be if he spends his time focusing on the future, living smart, working hard. Start with me in verse 12 and we'll see the conclusions that he comes to. He says this, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done? That just means uh, he's, he's like, I'm this king. I have all of these resources. When he says, what can the man do who comes after the king? Just what's been done? He's saying, listen to what I'm saying because you're not going to come to a better conclusion than I have because I have resources that you don't. Uh, 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. 
as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. His conclusion is this, the future is draining that what we think about the future, it drains me of the desire to live smart. And here's why. Your appointment with death removes every advantage of wise living. Your appointment with death removes every advantage of wise living. Here's what he says in verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, which which means as he walks or as he goes through life, there's a smoothness, right? Life is still broken. It's not perfect, but it's somebody that moves through life and uses his eyes. And he goes on and says, but the fool walks in darkness, that there There is a certain type of person that as they walk through life, it seems like they constantly get in their own way. It seems like they're constantly getting the short end of the stick. And his main point is this. There is an advantage in wisdom. Life is hard, but it's harder if you're stupid. And so his main point here is that, no, no, listen, there are things that you can do that will make your life better. When it comes to dating, date the right person. When it comes to marriage, marry the right person. If you don't marry the right person, it's going to be hard. When it comes to finances, there are principles that can be put in place to make sure that you secure right a good future for you and your family. When it comes to the job that you have, the school that you go to, the friends that you have, the people that you surround yourself with, there is a time and a place for wisdom. The book of Proverbs is all about a distinction in between a wise man and a fool. And what he's saying is, no, no, look, there is an advantage to living wisely. But here's what drains him of the desire to live, and that's this. Having an advantage is not the same thing as having an exemption. Just because things are better, he steps back and he starts to reflect on this, verse 14. And yet I perceive that the same event, death, happens to all. I can be as wise as I want to. He can be as wise as he wants. But his thing is one day we are all going to die. But look at verse 15. He takes the proposition of death and now it becomes intensely personal. 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Listen. Everybody's eyes. I mean, I need to see all of your eyes. When it comes to the concept of death, it's easy for us to hear we're all going to die. It's easy for us to hear y'all, you all will die. What really makes it settle inside of him is it becomes intensely personal. And he says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. It's not just a proposition. I am going to die one day. Because there's a crowd of... There's a crowd of us here. If I say you, we immediately think that's plural. If I had time and I could look into everybody's eyes right now, I would tell you that one day you are going to die. If I made eye contact with you, I don't know anything. I don't hope that it's you. I just can't make eye contact with us all. 
This is what makes near-death experiences so impactful in the lives of people because for the first time they're gripped with, wait a minute, I could actually die. And so what he says is, as I think about that, every advantage, all the work that I've tried to do to get ahead, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't mean anything. What's most important about the wise man or the foolish man is not the adjective that comes in front of their name. It's the now. It's man. The most important thing is that all of us are mortal. We all have an expiration date. And in light of that, all of our work to be on top, to live smart, his thing is, Man, as I think about the future and the appointment that I have with death, it really makes a lot of the things that I've done, the ambitions that I have seem pretty worthless. Leo Tolstoy had this short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's based on this one guy who has all of this ambition to get all of this land. And he comes up with this strategic and wise plan, makes a deal with a group of folks that said, hey, you have 24 hours to run and to make this big loop. You start here, make this loop, come back. And if you make it back to the end of this point, everything that you looped is yours. So he's nervous the night before, has this dream that he dies. So he wakes up and feels like, all right, I've really got to work. So he gets up and he works and he runs and he runs and he runs and he widens the circle. And then the sun starts to set and he feels like he's he's got a long way to go. So he sprints and he runs and he runs and he runs back. The people are cheering him on because he made this wide loop and he's going to get all this land. And he gets to the finish line before the day is done. And at the finish line, he drops dead. And they take a six-foot plot of land, and they answer the question, how much land does a man need? Six feet. No advantage. Right? This is what death does. In the game of life, death levels the playing field by taking everybody off of the playing field and putting them under it. So what advantage is being at the top of your class if both you and the person that failed out of school are going to wind up six feet under? What good is being at the top of the org chart, the top of platforms and podiums and pedestals? Death erases the distinctions that we tend to forget when we measure people up based on their careers. When people's lives conclude, we're reminded that nobody really on the inside had anything special. All of us expire. And not only does it remove the pride that exists in our heart that would seek to set ourselves up against somebody else, that fact that every advantage that we tend to work for here in this world under the sun as he talks through here, we really have nothing to show for it at the end of the day. More than that, he goes on in verse 17 and says this, or 16, sorry. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. It's not that we'll all die, but it's that nobody will be remembered. There's no enduring remembrance. Certain people may have certain days of the year where They've achieved a certain amount of fame and stuff that goes on in this life. So we remember them on their birthday. But his point here is it's not going to be constant. At best, you may get special attention once or twice per year. But we know how empty that is in this life that we live right now. If the special attention that you got on your birthday was the only attention that you got 
at any time through the course of the year, you would feel pretty miserable. And what he's saying is to spend your life trying to live smart to work for all of that is like making it your life's ambition to go to every beach in the world and to write your name in the sand on the coastline so people will remember you. Not knowing that by the time that you leave, the water's going to wash away your name and nobody's going to know that you've been there. Focusing on the future may be the key to our success in this life, but as we look not to possibilities, he's going to spend his time trying to look at inevitabilities, things that will take place. When we think about the appointment that you, singular, have with death, it reminds us of the vanity of all the advantages that we tried to work for. And so at the end of this little part, he's going to use this one word, 17. So I hated life. The strongest language yet in this book. Knowledge made him sad. Pleasure made him empty. But as he thought about his death and how worthless all of his work really was in the grand scheme of things, it made him borderline suicidal. I hated life. I despaired. I'm depressed. And so here's what I want you to know. That if you're in here right now and you found yourself at a place where you feel the same way as you think of the life that you have right now and you feel depressed and dismayed and you have used those same words, I hated life. While it may feel like you are in a bad place, while it may feel like that you are at rock bottom, I want you to know that you may be at rock bottom, but you're in the presence of some good company. What you feel right now is not foreign to the words of Scripture. What you feel right now is not foreign to the thoughts and the minds and the hearts of great men. Elijah in the Bible found himself in the same place. Job in the Bible finds himself in the same place. And if you're here and you feel that right now, one, I want you to know that you are not alone in the pages of scripture and you're not alone in this room. There are people here that would step back and say, me too, as I think about the future and the prospects of the worthlessness of all of what I've done. Me too. This is how I feel. And so as we go on, I don't want you to give up. I want you to know that you're actually in a very, very good place to meet Jesus because Jesus meets us all at the end of the road where we're convinced that the world that we live in and the life that we have right now really doesn't satisfy my soul in the way that I want it to. Amen. So he spoke to him and says, Yo, the future's draining. Because when I think about my death, it empties me of the desire to live because I've seen just how worthless all of what I've worked for is. But then he sits back and again, he's going to talk about things that are going to happen. As he looks at the future, it's like a scientist trying to analyze, not hypotheticals, but actual things that will take place. So he starts off and he says, all right, death drains me of the desire to live, but at least I still have hard work. And look here at how he talks about his hard work. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet I do know this. He will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun. 
Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. If death drains him of the desire to live, what takes place here is that thinking of future generations drains him of the desire to work hard. The advice that we get, think about your future, live smart, work hard, and things will turn out right in the end. Well, he said, well, if I live smart at the end, I'm still going to die, though the way that I die may not be the same as the fool. The fact is, I'm still going to die, so all my advantages are worthless. But then he steps back and he looks and he says, well, maybe if I work hard. But the frustrating thing is this. Even if I work hard and I get all of this stuff, I'm not sure of the character of the person that's going to take my stuff. But I do know this. Somebody else will control my stuff. So it's like all this work that I've done to enjoy, the only thing that I've ensured is that somebody else is going to enjoy my stuff. And at the end of the day, here's what he sits with. There are plenty of things that skip generations. Twins skip generations. Blonde hair or blue eyes skips generations. Receding hairline skips generations. Height skips generations generations. Do you know what doesn't skip generations? Stupid. Stupid doesn't skip generations. It's there in every one. And his frustration is, I could spend my whole life working for later to produce a good future, to enjoy and to reap the benefits of my hard work. And the conclusion that he comes to, but I'm going to die. He's going, we all will expire before the fruits of our labor ripens. And do you know who's going to get to enjoy it? Somebody who didn't have to work as hard as you to get it. Who's not going to value it in the same way that you do. And we see that in the world that we live in. We've seen. People that not only spent their lives working, but gave their lives for the rights of people in this country that were treated as less than human. For what? For world star hip hop? For love and hip-hop, for the real housewives of Atlanta. People gave their lives and worked to provide freedom. For what? To leave it in the hands of people who don't know or acknowledge the immense dignity with which God has created them for. And propagate this picture that there could be joy or lasting satisfaction found in the things that I get or the people that I'm with. Verse 23 at the end says this, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation for the workaholic Life is hard and you spend all of your time working and toiling. But then he goes here and says, but the curse is that it's hard to turn it off at night. So it's not like you just work hard all day. But he goes on and says, even at night, his mind doesn't rest. So it's long, hard days and short, restless nights. That even when somebody dies and goes to their grave, those of us that look back would would say things like, they would be rolling over in their graves if they knew what took place with all of their hard work. And as he looks, 
not just at a possibility, but a certain future, he asks himself, why? Why did I spend so much time working hard? Why did I spend so much time being a teacher in this school, pouring my life into kids, if this is what they're going to do with it? Why as a parent did I spend so much time investing in the lives of my kids only to have them grow up and throw it away? Why did I spend so much time investing in the lives of a relationship with somebody else only to have them spurn me, cheat, lie the way that they have? He sits back and he's driven to despair. But do you know what we learn from this? One of the quickest ways to discontentment is when you and I hold God hostage to an outcome that he never promised. Even if it's a good one. We work because God has called us to work and we do want to leave something behind. But what he's saying is this, as I look at the future, the only thing that I'm assured of is that the fruits of my labor are going to be enjoyed By somebody who, if I had control, they wouldn't get a dime of what I worked for. And thus we see that he brings us to where so many of us are. And we feel that sometimes looking at the future can feel draining. And it keeps us from enjoying the life that we have now. But if we try to enjoy the life that we have now and don't think about those things, then what takes place is we're going to wreck our future because there is value in being able to live smart and to work hard. So what's the answer to all of this? I think that it comes here in his conclusion. Read with me in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We're going to spend some time and work through that. But here's the first thing that I want you to see. What he prescribes us to do here is to enjoy the present. But the way that we enjoy the present is by embracing eternity. And here's what I mean by that. Our problem is not that we look to the future and when we think of the inevitabilities of the future, it's draining. Our problem is that as we look to the future, we don't look far enough. The only way that we can really enjoy the present right now is if we look not to the future under the sun, but as we embrace eternity beyond the sun. Verse 24 here, he says this, look, there's nothing better. Now, what this does not mean is that ultimate satisfaction is found in eating, drinking, and enjoying your work. This is just the conclusion of a section. It's not the conclusion of the book. But what he's saying is, no, no, listen. In the world that we live in right now, under the sun, this is as good as it gets. There's nothing better than this right now. This really is a good thing to be able to eat and drink in this. Find enjoyment in your work. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say there's nothing better than eating, drinking, and finding work that you enjoy. It's not circumstantial. It's not about the position that you have. It's not about the possessions that you can get from your job. It's not about finding a job or a place or a scenario that makes you joyful. What he's saying is there's nothing better than you presently enjoying what God has presently provided for you. So he goes on at the end and he says, look, this is from the hand of God. 
For apart from him, who can eat and find enjoyment? In those two verses, what he does is he pairs up this present enjoyment with a concept or a sight of eternity, or at least the one that holds eternity in his hands. His point here is to remind us, listen, all of your hard work, all of the things that you go after in this life will never provide for you the joy, the meaning, or the fulfillment that you want. All of that stuff is top shelf and your arms are, are too short. Stack all these things up, stack knowledge and pleasure and wisdom and hard work, and you're still going to prove that it won't lift you high enough to get the present enjoyment. It's this constant strain. That like we said this first week, a life without God is a life without gain. It's this constant toil, this constant working and striving, chasing after all of these good things that provide very good results in the short run. But in the span of eternity, they're worthless. Notice how he talks about man here too in verse 26, he talks about man, not just in terms of being wise or a fool in this life, but the distinction that he makes are these eternal distinctions. The way that he talks about man, the most important thing about you is not how wise you are in this life. It's not how smart you are or how hard that you work. The most important thing about you is how you relate to God. So look at who he says finds enjoyment and who doesn't. It has nothing to do with possessions. It has nothing to do with positions. It has nothing to do with your job, with your knowledge, with the degrees that you have. But it has everything to do with how it is that you relate to God. Verse 26, for to the one who pleases him. God has given wisdom and knowledge, and that word, one word, joy, the thing that's been so elusive. But to the sinner, he is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. As we sit and as we read a text like this, the first thing that comes to mind is we would all like to say, I think of myself as a God pleaser. God's pleased with me. I've done the things that God has called me to do. I think we tend to say that at times because we don't know what's meant by Sinner. This word sin comes from an archery term that's defined as to miss the mark. So it's, there's a bullseye, I pull back my bow and arrow, I shoot, and I don't hit the bullseye. All of what's gone on thus far in the book is this guy saying, in my search for meaning, I want you to know These are the ways that I missed the mark in the past so that you don't put your trust in those things. And what God gives, what we earn, what we get when we miss the mark, when we try to find meaning or fulfillment in this life outside of God is we get this this constant toil, this busyness where it seems like we're constantly going and striving and striving and we always feel like my joy is going to lie in that and just one more thing. How many of us find ourselves or have found ourselves in a place where even right now our thoughts are, I'd just be happy if. We're looking for a joy that takes place in the future and what he's saying here is if you think you would just be happy if you by your strength by your hard work by your knowledge by your intuition were able to grab a hold of something that you don't have you've missed the mark 
Here's what takes place. Here's what a God pleaser looks like. It's somebody that as they think of the life that they live and the life that they have, it's a life that's full of complete contentment in the things that God has already provided. As they think about their future death, it doesn't drain them of the desire to live because they think that they're going to lose anything. It excites them. They're grateful for the life that God has already provided for them. As we look at the Bible, we come into contact with one person who could fall into the role of God pleaser. And that person was Jesus. Here's what makes Jesus' life so different from all of ours. Jesus often not just thought about, but talked about his future death. But he doesn't talk about death in the way that we see here as the guy talks about the way that he missed his mark. Jesus' death didn't drain him from the life that God placed right in front of him. It drove him to live that life with more passion. Do you know why? Because Jesus never talked about his death without bringing in his destiny. Jesus never talked about his death in light of eternity. Every time he talked about his death, he talked about what it was for and how God was going to use his death to pay the price for all of us, all of our sins, those of us that have missed the mark. So as he talks about his death, he says, I'm getting ready to head here, but I do want you to know there is an eternity that's laid out for me that the only reason why I am going to die is so that the people that come after me that have inherited the stupid have a never-ending spring of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus didn't work hard in this life just so that he could sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor. He intentionally worked hard so that you and I could enjoy the fruits of his labor. People that don't deserve it. People whose character would disqualify them. It's only as we embrace this fact, as we embrace eternity and think not just about life under the sun, but life beyond the sun, that we can really find ourselves presently in a place where we see all of our life, however brief it is, as a gift from God. And grumbling and gratitude can't stay alive in the same heart. The one that pleases God is one that sees all of what he has. And instead of lamenting what's missing, takes into account that this is a broken world. Everything is broken and something is always going to feel like it's missing. So the virtue is not just in pointing out what's wrong, but it's in praising God that even right now, because of what Christ has done on the cross for our sins, you and I don't get what we deserve. I feel like this point was illustrated greatly in this book. Um, there was a pastor by the name of Benjamin Palmer. And he says he was headed to a funeral one day and somebody stopped him, put a crumpled up piece of paper in his hand. And they asked him, hey, I've got a really good friend. He's on his deathbed. I need you to talk to him. Goes to the funeral, goes to this guy, sits there walks into the door, and he sees that this guy is in bad shape. And so what he says to him is, sir, do you know how bad a shape you're in? And the guy that's on his deathbed says, yes. So he asks him, brother, are you prepared to die? And the guy steps back and he says, I'm not. So he sits down and talks with him and says, hey, I know you grew up in a Christian household Death is at your front door, so I don't have time to go through all of what God has done. You know what God has done in Christ for you. Will you at now, on your deathbed, relinquish control of your life and give it to the Lord? And the man says this, sir, would you pray for me that if God would just save me out of the scenario that I'm in right now, I promise that I'll live better for him in the future. And what the pastor said was this, brother, I want you to know you don't have a future in this world. 
And that's the last trick of Satan to get you to spurn the very gift that God's trying to give you now. And he stopped and there's silence and despair. And so the guy talks to him and says, listen, do you remember the thief on the cross? In the last moments of his life, he gave control to the Lord and it wasn't more than a line or two in his prayer. And he said, I want you to know it's never too late. It's never too late. And instantly he said that this man was silent. And then he lifted himself up and he was full of joy. And he says, I believe. I don't want a future here in this world. I want a forever with the Lord. And they sat and they prayed. And then he goes on and says this. And he was filled with so much joy that he turns to me and he says, hey, would you write a letter to my dad? And he's like, yeah, why? And he's like, because my dad has been praying that I would meet Jesus for years. Would you tell him that I found a savior? And he said that he would. And then he said that the man died right there in front of him. And do you know what he said? The whole exchange didn't last any more than 15 minutes. In that 15 minute span, you saw a man realize that he had no future in this world, but he didn't let a focus or a longing for a particular future uh, drain him or make him forget that there was an eternity that was at stake based on how he lived now. And when his eternity was secure, it enabled him to live with joy in the present, however brief that it was. I think that's what takes place here. That at the end of the day, for all of us, our future is uncertain. The certainties of our future will drain us of the desire to live And the diligence to work, it's only having an eternity that's secure. Being reminded that the same God, who's the only one that can provide a secure eternity for us, is the only one that can provide us with the eyes to see what's right in front of us so that we could enjoy life presently. So what do we do? What's the big kind of charge from a text like this? I think it's this. That we enjoy God's people and we enjoy God's possessions on God's terms. That we can leave out of here and be reminded That we serve a good God that's not only provided us with a secure eternity, but this great God has provided every one of us here in this room with something to be grateful to him for. And you know what he wants us to do with that? Enjoy those things. Live presently. Curb your expectations of a broken world. If you want perfection, you're constantly going to grumble. And it's not that God hasn't provided you with something to be grateful for. It's that you're ignoring what God has already put in your pathway. God's provided us with a community of people that can sit with us in our despair and and despondency. Take advantage of that. If you're a member of this church, don't grumble over the fact that you haven't been connected. You may need to find a new church. There's all this stuff that you wish would would take place. Look at what God has provided for you right now and take advantage of that. Come on Sunday next week for, uh, 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 for the launch of our small groups. Surround yourself with people that don't just spend their time in this life trying to enjoy the innocent pleasures of this life. But people that are going to help you enjoy the things that God has placed 
in front of you, but they're going to ask you about something that's much more important. I know last week at church we talked about this concept of, hey, kind of let's move past small talk. And I know that sometimes that's so hard for us. So here is three words that you can use to move past small talk and lead you to a place where you help people enjoy the present by embracing eternity. And those three words are this. How's your soul? When was the last time that you sat down and talked to somebody that God has placed in your life and you asked them, how's your soul? Here's the beauty of that. For people that aren't used to getting that question, it's confusing. And so they'll say, what do you mean? And then you can go in depth and ask them about specific things. And you can remind them of God's works whenever they're uh, in despair about the woes of life. And it provides us with a level of depth of relationship that reminds us that people are more than just objects that are meant for our earthly pleasure. But people, especially the people of God, our spouses, our friends. Or gifts that God has provided us to be able to enjoy here and now. Daily think about eternity and how God has gone through great lengths to secure an eternity with him. For all of us that will acknowledge, I've missed the mark. I've tried to find fulfillment in things that aren't you. And Lord, I don't want that anymore. Give me Jesus we would be reminded that like the great preacher once said, he who has God and everything in this world really has nothing more than he who has God alone. Let's be satisfied with God and primarily the gift of himself that he's provided for us. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you and just ask that you would give us joy to embrace the present that we have. There's so much for us to be discontent about. There's so many things in the future that we want to plan for. And I pray that you would give us the grace to plan for those things, but help us to be fully invested in the present with the people, with the family, with the spouses, with the jobs, with the friends that we have right now, Father. Um, help us to enjoy your many gifts to us and live as people. Um, who acknowledge that we have a great, a mighty, a powerful, but a very, very kind God to give us better than what we deserve, to give us fruit that we didn't work for, Father. Help us to enjoy your many gifts to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.